What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Well, Drew's not actually here today, uh, today being Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. Drew's in Texas, in Austin to be exact. He's there to cover Fantastic Fest, which began this past Thursday, September 21st, and continues through next Thursday, September 28th. I'm sure that Drew is scoring all sorts of great stories while he's down in the Lone Star State, which we'll hear about on upcoming episodes of this podcast. But before Mr. Taylor took off for Texas, he sat down with Disney vet Dave Bossert, who has not one, but two mouse-related books coming out this fall, and those are... The House of the Future, Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of the Future. That one is from Old Mill Press and will be available from Amazon starting on October 17th. And then there's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, A Visual Companion. This 224-page hardcover, which is being published by Disney Deluxe Editions and commemorates the 30th anniversary of the release of that Henry Selleck movie, that hits store shelves Tuesday, September 26th. Anyway, as I said, before Drew flew down to Texas, he sat down with Dave, and you can hear the interview that Mr. Taylor did with Mr. Boston on the second half of today's show. And Drew got Dave to talk about both of his books. Mind you, I was unable to sit in on this interview, which is a shame. Dave's a great guy. I always enjoy talking with Mr. Bossert. He has worked on a lot of amazing projects during his 30 years at the Mouse House. And the guy has killer stories to share, but... Not to worry, though. Drew and I are doing the divide and conquer thing with this week's fine-tuning. I'm covering the news portion of the show, and he's doing the feature. And next next week, things will be back to normal. Before we get to the news, just want to remind you that the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Fine-Tuning's new sponsor, which is Turing Plan's own travel agency. So if you're thinking of heading down to the Walt Disney World Resort in the not-so-distant future, these obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your dream vacation. They'll, they'll even toss in a free subscription to Turing Plan's. So... If you're planning on visiting Central Florida sometime soon, please check them out at touringplans.com backslash travel. Okay, so we were just talking about Disney-related stuff, so it makes sense that we now pivot to talking about Once Upon a Studio, that short film from Dan Abram and Trent Corey, which was created to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. 
Drew and I have been talking about Once Upon a Studio since that Disney-produced short had its world premiere at Annecy back in June of this year. Attendees at that of that animation festival reportedly lost their minds when they got to see well, 543 characters from more than 85 different Disney-produced feature-length projects and short films. Wow. By the way, once Upon a Studio got a similarly strong reaction at Destination D23 earlier this month. Folks who attend that official Disney fan club event, after they saw this nine-minute-long short, then gave the film a standing ovation. And this past week, we finally got a trailer for Once Upon a Studio, so the rest of us can now see what the fuss is all about. And from what I saw, this produced by Yvette Marino and Bradford Simonson uh, project genuinely delivers the goods. It, it takes a very loose idea that all of the characters from every one of Disney's animated features and shorts decide that they really need to pose for a photo in front of the studio to commemorate uh, the company's 100th anniversary. And the filmmakers use this to create this very meta movie. So what do I mean by meta? Well, okay, how many of you remember... Antonio Madrigal from Encanto. That character was Maribel's little cousin, the one who, over the course of that movie, was gifted with the ability to communicate with animals. Well, in a short film like Once Upon a Studio, Antonio, given his gift, would have a lot of animal friends to communicate with, which is why, during his brief appearance in the trailer for this project, Maribel's cousin is seen with Flit and Miko from Pocahontas, Pua from Moana, Pascal from Tangled, and two of those little bluebirds who help Cinderella make her dress. Speaking of Encanto, later in this very same trailer, we got to see Mirabelle's super strong sister, Louisa. She's the one who kept dealing with the village's wandering donkey problem by tossing them on her shoulders. <laughs> Only this time, instead of just having donkeys up on her shoulders, Louisa has got, under her arms, Rut and Took from Brother Bear. Uh, meanwhile, up on her actual shoulders, Louisa has Maggie, Grace, and Mrs. Calloway, the cows from Home on the Range. And then uh, up above the cows are two yet-to-be-determined donkeys. I, I couldn't figure out who they were given the framing. To see John Henry, the title character from the hand-drawn short that Mark Henn directed for Disney back in 2000, there in the mix with Cruella DeVille, or for that matter, to hear that Tony Bancroft, the, the co-director of, of Disney's Mulan, that he was invited back to the studio just so he could work on Once Upon a Studio, that, uh, that's just mm, chef's kiss. So when do the rest of us get to see Once Upon a Studio? This brand new short is still going to be released theatrically on November 22nd. It'll be in front of Disney's Wish, the, the Walt Disney Animation Studio's next feature-length project. But out ahead of that, Once Upon a Studio is going to be shown in its entirety on ABC as part of the wonderful world of Disney, Disney's 100th Anniversary Celebration. Hosted by Kelly Ripa, this show will be broadcast on Sunday, October 15th. And this broadcast will also include the featured television debut of Disney's Encanto. Okay, so we don't talk about Bruno, but come Monday morning, October 16th, 
I'm betting that a lot of people will be talking about that once upon a studio short that they just saw. And speaking of things being seen, Drew and I talked about uh, on last week's episode of Fine Tuning about how the new agreement between Disney and Charter w- was mucking up the 14th and final season of Archer, uh, largely because this adult animated comedy had been airing on FXX, uh, which was one of the eight Disney ad-supported cable networks, which, eh, as part of Disney's new deal with Charter, will no longer be carried by Spectrum. Lucky for Archer fans, the latest episodes from season 14 will now be available post-premiere on the video-on-demand versions of FX and FXX, which, given that this adult animated comedy is reportedly coming to a close this season, well, better than nothing, I guess. By the way, worth noting here that given that Spectrum is the second largest cable operator in the United States, with 14.7 million customers, that, that's roughly 20% of the people in the States who get cable, it's Charter's decision to no longer carry the ad-supported version of Disney Junior that seems to be causing most of the uproar. And that's largely because a lot of families now, especially the ones with small kids, no longer have access to Bluey. Now, mind you, this preschooler favorite is still available on Disney+, Plus, which Spectrum customers that have the select plan will have access to, uh, thanks to Disney's new carriage deal with Charter, which guarantees that Spectrum subscribers will have access to Bluey because Disney Plus Basic, uh, that's the version of of that subscription-streaming service with ads, that's going to be available to Spectrum subscribers as part of Disney's new carriage deal with Charter. Okay, any of that make any sense to you? I mean, I wrote the story, and I still have trouble following what was going on. Speaking of entertainment industry-related news, this past week there's reportedly been some movement, at at least as far as the Writers Guild of America and and the studios, coming to terms with the hope that this strike has gone on for nearly five months now. And a lot of the folks I've talked with seem to think that it's Really encouraging. After a full week of talks, both sides then agreed that they needed to meet again today. And and again, remember, we're recording this on Saturday, September 23rd. That's encouraging. That seems to indicate that some real progress is toward a, a final ag- agreement has been made. Anyway, here's hoping that by the time this episode of Fine Tuning actually posts on Tuesday, September 26th, the writers in the studios have finally resolved their difference, which would then potentially clear the way for serious talks involving the writer's strike. Remember when Drew and I only used to talk about cartoons in this podcast? Towards that end, Mr. Taylor and I, over the past few months, have been talking a lot about The Boy and the Heron, which was supposed to be Hayao Miyazaki's very last movie for Studio Ghibli. Of course, when this animated feature made its North American debut at the Toronto International Film Festival last month, the manager of Studio Ghibli, while he was walking the red carpet, revealed to reporters that Ohio was still coming into work and supposedly talking about the next animated feature he wants to make. So, you know, who knows? That The Boy and the Heron may not, in fact, be the very last Hayao Miyazaki movie. But, I, which again, hopeful bit of news, but... 
Hayao Miyazaki is 82 years old. And as we learned with uh, last week's sad news uh, in regard to Pete Kozicic, uh, he, he was the visual effects supervisor for Night Before before Christmas, who uh, sadly passed away earlier this month. Uh, Pete was just 72. And by the way, I, uh, Mr. Tail and I want to extend our heartfelt condolences to Mr. Kozicic's uh, friends and family. But okay, anyway, when you're dealing with filmmakers in their 80s, if you're the head of a studio, you have to plan for that day, which will come when your elderly artists, genius though they may be, can no longer physically come into work. And and Studio Ghibli just did something this past week that signals that this animation studio is actively gearing up for that sad day when Hayao Miyazaki is gone. On Thursday, September 21st, executives at Studio Ghibli announced that they had entered into an agreement with the Nippon Television Network Corporation. Uh, that's Japan's leading uh, television broadcaster, by the way. Under the terms of this deal, Nippon Television Network Corporation will acquire a 42.3% stake in Studio Ghibli. This legendary animation production company will then become a subsidiary of Nippon TV, and then executives from Japan's leading broadcaster will then take charge of this animation studio. Now, now mind you... Miyazaki will still be the honorary chairman of Studio Ghibli, but this is definitely the end of an era, folks. Given the day is coming when Ghibli's resident genius, at least when it comes to character and story, will no longer be able to come into work, the executive there got scared. And figuring that they wouldn't be able to continue on their own producing hugely successful films, they... They opted for financial security. Anyone else out there think that this story actually sounds like the start of a, a, a great new Hayao Miyazaki movie? Where at some point in the story, all these magical creatures rise up and then drive the heartless executives from Nippon TV out of this beloved animation studio? I'm not sure that's actually going to happen in real life, but here's hoping. Seriously, though, someone out there has to make this movie. I seriously want the Studio Ghibli story to, to have a happy ending. And Speaking of ending, we're now at the end of the news portion of this week's fine-tuning. In a moment, you'll get to hear Drew Taylor's interview with Disney vet Dave Bossert. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Before we get started here, I really feel like I need to explain who Dave Bossard is. I mean, I know the guy. I think he's great. But I need you to understand how much of the animated entertainment that you love this guy had a hand in. David A. Bossert was born in the Astoria Queen section of New York City. After graduating from Massapequa High School, Dave turned his attention to art, which eventually led to Dave applying to the California Institute of Arts, better known to all us animation nerds as CalArts. Anyway, Dave was accepted into the character animation program at CalArts on a Walt Disney scholarship, no less. And after graduation, Bossert accepted a position at the Mouse House. He started as an in-betweener in the special effects department at Walt Disney Feature Animation. With his first, the very first film he worked on was 1985's The Black Cauldron. Eh, you gotta start somewhere. From there, Dave graduated to being a full-on effects animator at Disney, and then Bossert had a front-row seat as Disney's second golden age of feature animation got underway. I mean, you know, he worked on The Great Mouse Detective, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Little Mermaid. By the time Beauty and the Beast rolls around, Dave is now a supervising effects animator. And from there, he went on to work on Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Hercules, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And, and in the middle of all that, Dave did effects work on Tim Burton's The Nightmare of Christmas, which inspired him to write, well, one of the books that, that Mr. Bossert and Mr. Taylor will be discussing today. And speaking of books, Dave became an award-winning author over the past decade. His first book, Remembering Roy E. Disney, Memories and Photos from a Storied Life, that hit store shelves 10 years ago this month, September of 2013. Uh, that acclaimed volume was then followed by Dolly and Disney, Destino, the story, artwork, and the friendship behind the legendary films with Disney Editions, uh, published in 2015. Then came Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons, which was first published in 2017, then revised in 2019 because, hey, they found more lost Oswald shorts. In between, Dave's original Lost World book and the revised edition came Kem Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios. Uh, that was published in 2018. Then in 2020 came Dave's 3D Disneyland, like you've never seen it before. And, and, and then in 2021, we got Bossert's just flat out wonderful Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, the making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and beyond. Okay, so at this point, you got the idea, right? That if you're a serious Disney fan, you already have a pile of Dave Bossert written books in your reference library. Well, Get ready to make room for two more, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, 2023, Dave produced two books, The House of the Future, Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow, and Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, A Visual Companion. So i uh, tell you what, let's now listen in 
on Mr. Taylor's conversation with Dave about how these two handsome volumes came to be. Dave Bossert, I can't believe we haven't had you on the show before. Thank you so much for being here. Good to see you. Good to hear from you. Everything good? Yeah. Uh, Drew, thanks for having me on. I miss Jim Hill, and I, I, I know he'll be here. He'll, he's here in spirit, and I think few people can say I miss Jim Hill, so you are you are one of them. <laughs> okay. But we're we're but, so here. We, you have two books coming out now, right? Or I do. So okay. I have I have Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary of The Nightmare Before Christmas, and that's releasing on September Tuesday, September 26th. And okay. then I also have The House of the Future, Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow. And that book has like a tiered release. So the author okay. signed copies have gone out to people who pre-ordered the book. And it officially launches on Amazon on October 17th. Wow. Okay. And people who have read your other books and you're... I, I I always love you just digging into one specific topic in the in the way that only Dave Bosser can do. But tell tell me about the the Monsanto book and what what it's all about. Well, you know, uh, Drew, I had never seen the uh, House of the Future, the Monsanto House of the Future, as it was called. It was installed at Disneyland just at the entrance of Tomorrowland really on the property where Pixie Hollow is now, if uh, your listeners will, will know where that is, that's about where the House of the Future was. And it was there until 1967 when they took it out. And so I had never seen it. I never toured it. I was very fascinated with that particular attraction. And it was a free attraction. There was no charge to go through it. It was a walkthrough attraction. And I had been fascinated with it for many years. And I decided, well, I pick topics that are, you know, haven't really been covered and that I know I could do some kind of a deep dive on. And so I decided I wanted to take a tour of the house of the future. And that's how I set up the book. The book is, it gives the, how the house of the future came about all the back history of it and the context. And then at some point in the book, there, there's a tour map and there's an actual uh, the chapters are set up the way you would have seen the house of the future had you gone up the steps and entered it and walked around it and then came out. It's set up in that same order because I wanted it to be a tour of the house of the future. And you get to see not only the original version of the house when it opened in 1957, but you also get to see some of the remodels of the interior that went on several times until 1967. Wow. This sounds like a time machine in a book. Basically, you know, the- kind of it's an immersive experience, you know, and and again, I wanted it to be as thorough as I possibly could. So people would walk away after they read the text and see all of the pictures. And there's a ton of pictures. I keep getting notes every day from people saying, my God, there's so many pictures in here and I've uh, stuff I've never seen before. And that's what I love hearing from people when they, when they go through one of my books. So for me, it was really about uh, having that experience as close as you could possibly get without physically being in the house of the future. 
Well, where did these pictures come from? Did you source them all? Where did people send you things? Uh, you know, it was a combination of things. You know, I was able to get a lot of material from the Monsanto archives, uh, from the MIT Museum in Boston, uh, from private collections, from my own collection of stuff. So there's plenty of material in there that I think people are going to go, wow. You know, I've never seen this before. And they're going to be doing that a lot through this book. <laughs> I love that. I cannot wait to see this. Let's talk about Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes. I think there there are a couple of books coming out, but I think we know that the definitive one is going to be the Dave Bossert book. Yeah. I, you know, Disney Editions is certainly celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Nightmare Before Christmas. I, I think there might be a cookbook uh, coming out. I think there's, uh, I don't know. Uh, and, and there's the entire script that they've created a book out of. But my book, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, is really a thorough behind-the-scenes of how this movie got made. And the entire process is dissected and talked about through the eyes of the filmmakers, artists, and technicians that worked on the film. Wow. Well, were you you were at Disney? Were you at Disney? You were at Disney at the when yeah, this thing came yeah, out. Yeah, no, right? I I was not only at Disney. I actually worked on Nightmare Before Christmas. I have a screen credit as snow animator. Oh, um, really? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I've said this a number of times. When when Disney Editions approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing the Nightmare Before Christmas, I said, you know, I worked on the movie, and they said, no, we had no idea. <laughs> so that was a plus that I had actually worked on the film. But the other interesting thing is, is that I tell people I did very little, I, a very small part of that movie. And I say that because there were an enormous number of artists and animators and technicians that worked on that film for a couple of years and put their heart and soul into it and made what I think is an absolutely beautiful holiday classic that bridges Halloween and Christmas. And so for me, I was happy to help them when they needed some help. And it was really to put snow in Halloween town in that one sequence. And that was it. And I did that with a software engineer named Trin Huang. And I always want to give him a shout out because the, there'd be no snow in the nightmare before Christmas if it wasn't for Trin writing the software that allowed us to do that. That's amazing. Well, when you were working on it, did you have a feeling that you were working on something special or was it just sort of like, what, what is this going to well, be? Well, I look, it, it was Tim Burton. He was established at that point with having done Beetlejuice. Uh, he used to work at Disney. He had gone to Cal arts where I had gone to Cal arts. I had a couple of his picture books. There was a children's book version that he had done of nightmare before Christmas. I had a couple of those and I love stop motion. I mean, you know, I'm of the age where I remember watching Jason and the Argonauts and, you know, the the Ray Harryhausen stuff and the original King Kong that was done as stop motion. And I also grew up watching Gumby and Pokey and Davy and Goliath. And it was sort of a combination of all those things. I always loved stop motion. I had done some little stop motion films myself when I was in high school and 
So I was always a fan. And so when they were doing this film, I loved Tim's designs. Um, I loved the idea of this, of sort of this mashup of Halloween and Christmas. And just was honored when when I was asked to do a little bit of work to help them out. Uh, and that's really what it boiled down to. Well, so do you, I haven't I haven't not gotten a copy of this book yet, but did you get to go back to, to Henry Selleck and Tim Burton yeah. and, and all the people? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when I started to do all my research, the first thing I did was I started reaching out to everybody, you know, so I did an interview with uh, with Tim Burton. I spent a day with Henry Selleck up at his home in, in the Bay Area. I uh, met and spent time a uh, number of hours with Danny Elfman talking about the music. Uh, I interviewed Rick Heinrichs, who's uh, uh, the uh, production consultant, uh, but really... I think a production designer. I interviewed uh, a number of the uh, assistant art directors. The art director, Dean Taylor, was uh, moved back to Australia, uh, so I didn't talk to him. But um, I did in-person and Zoom interviews with most of the animators and head of puppet fabrication, producers, uh, production people. Uh, I really tried to sort of get a sense of the movie from a lot of different uh, vantage points. And what was most important for me was to actually write the story through the eyes of the filmmakers. Okay. And did you discover anything or did you get an anecdote from somebody that you were like, wow, this is really new nobody's heard this before and fans of this movie are going to absolutely adore it well i think there is one uh bit in there and and i actually show a still frame there you know when you do stop motion it's usually a small budget you don't really have budget to do reshoots so you really have to do the shot like first time through right and, uh, it, you know, except what they call a pop through, which is sort of like a pose of the shot that you you film and then you review with the director before you actually do the frame to frame animation. And uh, there was one shot where the vampires are playing uh, hockey on the frozen pond and uh, the original shot, the hockey puck that they hit into the camera was actually Tim Burton's head. <laughs> and it was like a little caricature of Tim Burton. And and Henry got a little cold feet on showing that to Tim and had the shot redone with, uh, I think it's a pumpkin. Yes. Yeah. And so that was kind of an interesting little tidbit, a little story behind that. Uh, and I actually asked Tim about it. And Tim, kind of, you know, because he's an artist and he was an animator and he, he understood why they would do that and wasn't offended by it, you know? And I think, you know, had Henry known that today, you know, ha had he known what he knows today, maybe he would have left that in for the fans, you know? Yeah. Do you, are you still uh, in love with the uh, nightmare Before Christmas? Do you go to the, the yeah, haunted I, mansion I, and everything? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely am. Uh, you know, I've always been a fan of the film. Uh, I, you know, will say that it's a bonafide holiday classic. But some people call it a cult classic. I, it's not. Maybe early on it was, but I think it's gone beyond that. I, I think it's a bona fide holiday classic like 
you know, the Rankin and Bass, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and and Frosty the Snowman and the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, you know, the Chuck Jones version, of course. And I watch it almost religiously every year, whether I go to the El Cap, because every so often I get invited to be at the El Capitan with Don Hahn. Uh, who usually hosts that show. And when I do go to the El Capitan, after I've done my bid on stage with Don, I go back to my seat and I sit in the theater and watch the movie because <laughs> I love seeing these films projected on a big screen. You know, because yeah. you know, sometimes when you do those events, people are like, you know, I've seen this movie a million times, you know, so I'll do my bit on stage. I'll talk. I'll answer questions. And then, you know, when the lights go down and the movie starts, I'm out the door and in my car driving home. But <laughs> but that is the case because I actually do go back to my seat. I sit with sometimes with my family and I watch the whole movie until the end. Well, I wanted to ask about Danny Elfman because he really is Jack, right? Like he fought for the 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 role and to yeah. be able to be the singing voice. And I know he was very kind of injured by Chris Sarandon being the speaking voice. Yeah, and I, I talk I talk about that in the book. Yeah. What, is he is he a little is he over it? Or no, I, th- I think he's over it. I mean, I think he understood, but it's still a hurtful thing to have to go through. And it was a very difficult conversation for Henry and Tim to have, you know, yeah. and uh, but it was the right choice creatively for the film. Uh, they really needed uh, somebody with acting chops to do the speaking voice. Yeah. Have you ever been to his, you know, big Hollywood Bowl show? Yes. Yeah. In in fact, the first year they did it, I wrote the uh, program notes for the souvenir program that they sold. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, uh, they just announced that they're doing uh, the Hollywood Bowl uh, Nightmare Before Christmas on Friday, the 27th, Saturday, the 28th and Sunday, the 29th this year. And it's a big 30th anniversary. I've been told that there's going to be some surprises. I can't tell you what those are because they would kill me. Uh, (laughs) Kill me first and ask questions later. Uh, But the fact is, is it going to be a spectacular Hollywood Bowl show those three nights. And I've been to it. I think they do a fantastic job. Uh, Richard Kraft, I believe, is the producer again this year. He's done them before. He produces the whole show. He's Danny's manager. Uh, He's absolutely fabulous. He knows what the fans want because he's a fan. Yeah. And every year they say this is the last year. So you never know when it's actually going to be the last year. So go when you yeah, can. Yeah, you know something? I, I, I don't necessarily think it'll ever be a last year. You know, even if you don't get Danny or any of the talent to come out on stage, they'll probably still do it every so often a, as a show. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's very special to see the live orchestration with the L.A., you know, the L.A. Phil or, you know, whatever group they put a group of musicians they put together and to see a film in that venue on a big screen with live singing and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's just a very special experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, the movie is so interesting because it, it was not a hit out of the gate. I remember going to see it opening day and it was in like the smallest theater in the multiplex where I went to see it, but it's grown so immeasurably over the years. I mean, did you have the feeling that, oh, this will stick around or were you sort of dismayed like the rest of the company at the initial disappointment, I guess? You know, I think at that point I was, I was kind of jaded individual, you know, I had been in the business for a while. And so I felt like it got, 
really shorted on the marketing end of things. And that was, and I talk about that in the book because they didn't really know how to market this movie. You know, mm-hmm. they, they put it under the touchstone label because they thought it might be too out there and too frightening for their Disney core audience. So they put it under touchstone and then they didn't really know how to market the movie because nobody really, honestly, nobody really cared about this film. They really were more interested in being in business with Tim Burton and having Tim do some live action films for them than they were caring about this movie. This was just this little movie. It has small budget. Uh, If this was a way to get Tim Burton back to Disney so he could do live action movies for Tim, you know, for, for Jeffrey Katzenberg, then so be it, you know? And, And I think had they, put this out under the Disney label, had they marketed it properly uh, as a family movie that people would really, you know, enjoy. You could take your whole family to see this. I think it would have done better out of the gate, but that's one of the reasons why it got this following. And I think what's so wonderful 30 years on drew is that you've got people who saw it when they were kids are now taking their kids to see it. And to go to these special screenings like at the El Capitan or at the Hollywood Bowl or to just watch it on Disney Plus. Yeah. And I think now it is labeled Disney, right? It, it is. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. A number of years ago, they actually stripped Touchstone off of it. And it's now Disney's Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Which is disappointing because I always like the black and white Touchstone label that was attached to it. But yes. I guess we always we, we have Ed Wood with that same uh, label. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, you know, Frank and Weenie will have a second? You think you'll be writing a Frank and Weenie 30th anniversary? Book? I, you know, I, I have no idea. I, I mean, you know, that's something I, I honestly, I think would be a wonderful book because you've got the live action uh, short, the 30 minute short that Tim did when he was at Disney back in the eighties. And then you've got this feature length, uh, stop motion version of the film. I would love to delve into that. I think it would be a fascinating book to have and have a lot of behind the scenes material for it. Were you able to talk to to Paul Rubens before he passed for the book? No. And unfortunately, I, I, I have to tell you a story here because Paul is Please. a Paul Rubens was, uh, was an alum of Cal Arts. He went through the theater school at Cal Arts. And so Paul and I served on an iteration of the Cal Arts Alumni Association back around 2000. Uh, he was president. I was vice president. Uh, we did a bunch of events and, you know, did a, a big 30th anniversary celebration that we helped organize for the school. And when I got this assignment to do this, I sent Paul an email and I didn't get a response. And I now, sadly, because he passed away a few months ago, it was around the time that he was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Oh, and wow. so, you know, he was privately battling that. And I had no idea. And I just thought, well, you know, he he doesn't want to respond to me. I'm not going to push it, you know. Uh, right. But after he passed away and I read these obituaries and found out what, you know, what he died of and when he got diagnosed. And so I was like, wow, he, in fact, he was probably, I think, uh, you know, a couple years into that health uh, battle. Wow. 
Well, the other fallen comrade in the Nightmare Before Christmas story is obviously Joe Ramp. And yeah. I am sure you found our archival stuff and talked so, to people about how much he meant. But maybe like, yeah, just talk about like who he was and, and yeah. what he meant to, to Nightmare yeah, Before Christmas. Yeah, so, so in, in the book, there's actually a sidebar on Joe Ramp who uh, in the story in the story chapter, Joe has had a story. He was also friends with Tim from the early days when they were both starting out at Disney animation. And he's he's probably considered, I think, to be uh, one of the top story artists of this generation of animators. John Canemaker wrote a wonderful book called The Two Joes, and it profiles Joe Grant, who was probably one of the great story artists of the golden age at Disney, you know, in the thirties, forties period. And Joe Ramft, who arguably I think is one of the greatest story artists of our generation and really was the, the backbone of story for Pixar when they were starting out with toy story and, and the other films they did. Yeah. And absolutely a titan of uh, yeah. the creative space who also died very tragically. Yeah. And so there, there's a sidebar and there's some beautiful quotes from Tim Burton about, uh, about Joe. I also did a sidebar on Kelly Asbury, who was a classmate of yes. mine at, at uh, Cal arts and Kelly was a huge help. Uh, uh, really gave me a lot of background information on the art direction and some of the things that went on behind the scenes in translating Tim's drawings to the three-dimensional puppets and sets. And, uh, and unfortunately Kelly passed away of cancer in 2020, just as the pandemic was getting going. And so I, I did a, a, a very nice sidebar and Rob Minkoff, who was good friends with him, who was one of the co-directors of the Lion King, Rob gave some beautiful quotes for that. And then the other person that has a sidebar is in the animation chapter. And it's a gentleman named Paul Berry who passed away in 2000. And he was considered to be one of the greatest stop motion animators of, again, our generation. And there's some wonderful stories about him and some of his colleagues uh, talking about him in that sidebar. So, you know, I really tried to cover everything I could cover about this movie and how this movie got made. When you were spending that day with Selleck, did you try to get him to show you some Shadow King stuff? That's that would be my prim primary goal, just to kind of. No, I I literally, uh, you know, Henry's a, a rather private guy, and I really just stayed focused on Nightmare Before Christmas. I was very mm -hmm. honored that he invited me into his home. He had some beautiful production puppets uh, in his house, and there's a picture of, I believe, one of them, which is uh, the I think the original sculpture of uh, Sandy Claus. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who made that? Did Rick make that? Uh, I believe it was made by Rick Heinrichs. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and there there was some some really interesting stories and, and Henry opened up about and it was just a really nice, memorable day that I spent with him. Well, I heard him say recently, you know, that had he known he was making Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas and not Henry Selleck's. The Nightmare Before Christmas, he might have been less sore about sort of where the praise for the movie was heaped. 
But did you did you get the sense that he's mellowed about that? Did you get into that at all? You know, I I think that, you know, when I talked to him, I think he was pretty mellow about it. But I think there was a there was a hint of sensitivity to it. But, you know, one of the things I always talk about when I talk about Nightmare Before Christmas is that it was directed by Henry Selleck. It wasn't directed by Tim. Tim produced it. It was Tim's idea. But it was directed that movie. The the responsibility of that movie that you see on screen was on Henry's shoulders, you know, and Henry is a brilliant director, especially in stop motion. And all you have to do is go look at Coraline or Wendell and Wild or James and the Giant Peach or Monkey Bones or, you know, any of the films that he's done over the years. They're just brilliantly crafted films, whether you like the movie or not. They're just brilliantly yeah. crafted films. Well, I think I, I heard at one point that the production said, you know, that they were getting better as the movie was going along. So, like, you know, minute 72 is better than minute one. And did you did you, you know, get I, evidence I, to reflect that? Well, I think when I was talking to a lot of the animators, you know, you got to realize most of those animators never did a feature film. Yeah. Right. And most of those animators were cutting their teeth on piecemeal work like Pillsbury Doughboy commercials and, you know, working with Art Cloakey on Gumby and Pokey. So the the fact that they were able to, you know, do stop motion animation for well over a year in a warehouse in San Francisco, of course, you're going to get better at it. You get better at anything that you do every single day. You just continually get better. And uh, they were very inventive in how they did stuff. Um, They really cared about what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, we seem to be kind of in a a golden age of stop motion almost between Pinocchio and Wendell and Wild. Like you said, we've got a new chicken run this year. Are you still uh, in love with the medium? I I really am. In fact, you know, I have to say I'm a fan of a lot of the films that Leica has done uh, up in the Portland area, Um, you know, especially like Box Trolls and Coraline. Those are beautiful films, and I I don't think they they get enough attention from the public. And, you know, I think some of the stop motion is almost verging on too perfect, uh, <laughs> where it, 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 it's almost feeling like it was, it's CG animation. It's that good. Yeah. Uh, which is a compliment, you know, to the skill of the animators. But. I kind of like a little bit of that handmade quality that you see in Nightmare Before Christmas and you see in, you know, the Rankin and Bass holiday specials like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. I like to see a little bit more uh, of the hand of the artist, but I still love the medium. I, I still enjoy it. I just went and saw The Inventor last weekend Oh, right. Anthony's movie. Yeah. yeah, Written and directed by Jim Capabianco, uh, who wrote Ratatouille for Pixar. And uh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And there were several members of the um, production team that had worked on Nightmare Before Christmas worked on that film. Uh, You know, the inventor. It's out in theaters. People should go see it. It's a beautiful handcrafted, you know, stop motion movie with some 2D sequences. And it's gorgeous. I loved it. And it's a fan. You know, Drew, it's a true family film. 
Yeah. There, there's no controversy. There's nobody coming out and saying, oh, my God, there's this kind of a character or they're doing this and I'm not going to take my kids to see it. There's none of that. This is a beautiful family movie. Anybody could go see it. You could take kids to see this. Nobody's going to object to anything. It's just beautiful. Yeah, you know? I can't and, and, and it's based on uh, on historical facts. You know, so you got that. And of course, Chicken Run. I love the first one. I can't wait to see the second one, you know, yeah. and that's and that's more, you know, claymation. That's that that's, you know, uh, stop motion claymation animation. Yeah, hopefully there'll be some fingerprints in there so that you can see it and say, yeah. there there we go. Yeah, yeah. And, and and by the way, I love that, you know, because again, you sense the artist is making this, you know, it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, you know, Del Toro's Pinocchio, I loved that film. I just mm-hmm. loved his take on uh, that classic Carlotti novel, you yeah. know? And it was very different from the Disney Pinocchio. And and by the way, I can't say the same about the live action Pinocchio that Disney did. I mean, I mean, boy, whew, we, that yeah. was a dud. <laughs> <laughs> the less said, the better about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dave, I know you well. I know you are always working on ten thousand projects. Um, what else is coming down the pipe for you? Well, you know, I'm I'm always busy. I I've got a bunch of uh, book projects on the boards that I'm doing research on. You know, for me, Drew, it's never about one project, start it, mm-hmm. finish it, and then start the next one. It's always I always like to work with, you know, multiple things. I'm juggling a lot of balls as it were. And yes. so I have book projects that I've been researching and accumulating material for for years. Years that are going to come to fruition in the coming years. So, well, yeah, I'm sure they are going to be about subjects that maybe people didn't know were so interesting. There'll probably be some subjects that are a little bit more commercial, but uh, you have a new slant on them. Is that, yeah, you know, something it's, it's always going to be a mix of stuff with me, but it's always going to be projects that really haven't been dealt with or Mm -hmm. haven't been dealt with in the way that I dive into things. Yeah. You know, and um, and and that's what I love about doing it. It, You know, I'm not knocking other things that are out there. It's just I'm more interested in in learning and and knowing about something that really hasn't been written about. Yeah. You know, or in the case of Nightmare, a, a whole new angle on things. Well, you know, something nobody's really done a making of book on the nightmare before christmas that really tells the story through the the eyes of the artists Mm. you know the book they put out in 93 was almost a promotional companion to the movie yeah you know but it it doesn't dive into how the puppets are made and show you pictures that you know they took when they were casting oogie boogie and how his armature went into it and the limitations they had with, you know, that puppet because he was so large. He was the largest uh, stop motion puppet to be animated at that time. Really bigger than King Kong. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, Wow. And so to me, having that kind of look into the making of the behind the curtain of a film, I think it's usually important, not just only from a historical standpoint, you know, an oral history, if you will, uh, written history, but also it's fascinating for the fans who love the movie and just really are hungry to know how did they do that? 
You know, yeah. I mean, when you're watching the film, you sit there and go, how did how did they do that? I, I don't know how that happened. You know, and the likelihood is they're going to find out by reading this book and looking at, I mean, just an unbelievable amount of pictures in the book, yeah. because a lot of that material I sourced from the artists themselves, their personal photos that artists had the wherewithal to say, hey, I better take pictures of what's going on here for posterity, not not just for myself, but maybe somebody will use them at some point in the future. And that's when Dave Bossert strikes. Well, says, you know, at the, literally at the end of every interview I did, I would say, do you have any photos, personal photos, ephemera, anything you saved from the movie that you'd like to share? And so people were scanning and sending me stuff. You know, and and then it was easy to get there, you know, to get them to sign a release so we could put it in the book and all of that kind of stuff, because it was their personal. They took the pictures. That's amazing. And it's also, you know, nice to have hindsight because you're right that that original book was very cheery and, uh, you know, we're going to take on the world and then the movie fizzles and, you know, it has this whole second life and you can get it. You're able to get into all of that with the kind of benefit of distance yeah and, and you know i feel very fortunate because disney editions did a beautiful job on this book they really have and also i wasn't edited as heavily as i thought i would be you mm. know oh, as that's far as far as you know because disney is disney and they they want to sanitize stuff and you know try and take the edge off of things if they have to uh and, and i don't blame them i really don't but i also think there's something to be said about telling the full story uh and i push back on some notes where they were trying to cut something and i push back and i you know and i i was able to keep things in that i i thought were important to keep in and there was a few things that i just wasn't going to win that battle and you just got to let it go you know do you want to share it you just want to share any anecdotes here since well the, no i mean i will i will tell you that there was a there was a quote from tim burton that they absolutely wanted to, to have taken out uh, okay. and, and I didn't think it was terrible, but it didn't put the company in, in the best of light, but it wasn't a nasty comment, mm -hmm. you know, but it was a, it was a, a true comment. Yeah. And they didn't want to face the truth about that. So, <laughs> so, so that had to come out, you know, and I and I was actually kind of surprised because it was a Tim comment, you know, it was a Tim quote. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, look. That's the way the ball bounces and you, you got to pick and choose your battles and you go from there. And you got more in than you thought you would. So we'll yes. say it's a, a net win. There. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Okay. I, listen, I've had a number of books where I said, oh, I put that in thinking it was going to get cut out. <laughs> And you're letting me keep that in. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> well, Dave, thank you so much for chatting with me. Is the podcast still going on? We need to plug uh, Skull Rock. Oh, well, right? yeah. So let, let me let me give a couple of plugs here. Okay. Uh, people can go to my website, davidbosser.com. There's a tab there for free stuff. So if people buy my book and they live someplace in the world or in the, you know far away in the country, they can write to me with a self-addressed stamped envelope enclosed, and I will send them a signed book plate. This is something, amazing. Yeah, this is something that I like to do because you know there's people in various parts of the United States and Canada who 
you know, they may never be able to come to an event that I'm going to be at to sign books uh, and and they might not be able to get their book signed, but they can get a free book plate with my signature on it. And by the way, I really do sign those myself. There isn't an autograph machine doing it. I sign them myself and I put them in the envelope and I mail them back to people. So that's something I like to do. So you can do that at davidbossert.com and there's like 60 articles I've written over the years and program notes and all kinds of stuff that people can uh, read. It's all free. So go to davidbosser.com. If you want to get a signed edition of my house of the future book, go to the oldmillpress.com, the oldmillpress.com. They can get a signed edition now. They don't have to wait until mid-October when it releases through the bookstores and the online retailers. So that's at the oldmillpress.com. And then the Skull Rock podcast. Yes. So, so you need you know, to have me and Jim on the podcast. I think, that, I, you, you know, know something I, I will invite you guys onto the podcast because, you know, something I started that podcast. It was very serendipitous, like everything I do. It's like it just fell into my lap. But I was on Al John Goh's Disney List podcast in the summer of 2020 in the height of the pandemic, promoting my 3D Disneyland book. And we had such a great rapport that. I sent Al John a note saying that was really great. I really enjoyed the interview and thank you so much for, you know, promoting the book. And he wrote back and he said, man, he goes, you ought to do your own podcast. And then I wrote him and I said, well, I said, if I ever did a podcast, I do one with you. And then he wrote back. He goes, are you serious? Cause if you're serious, I'll do a podcast with you. <laughs> and by October of 2020, we launched the skull rock podcast and we've, Pretty much, except for around the holidays when we do some uh, vault shows, uh, we do a show every week. Wow. Uh, and we've, we've got like 150 shows in the can. And, you know, we, we interview people uh, all about animation, hear all the behind the scenes stories. Uh, we've interviewed authors, writers, musicians, composers, animators, directors, producers, uh, you name it. Uh, it's all about it's all about Disney and pop culture. So the Skull Rock podcast, you can get it anywhere you get your podcasts. There we go. The the sun, you know what I always say? The sun never sets on the Dave Bossert empire. Well, I was going to say, this is the, this is Dave's media empire. It, it really is. It really <laughs> is. And I'm sure there'll be, uh, we should do something at, at, at Gallery Nucleus again, but actually in person this time. Yeah, you know something, I, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I really would love to do that with the folks at Gallery Nucleus uh, with the House of the Future and the Nightmare Before Christmas book. Yeah, you let's know? do it. Um, um, yeah, if you if you got an in with them and you want to reach out to them, I'm happy to do something. Let's do it. So when you see that on the calendar, you know it all, it came from this, this all right. interaction right F now. Fantastic. I appreciate it. Well, Dave, it. thank you so much for, for coming on. And we cannot recommend not only these books, but all of your books, everything you've done, essential reading and, and looking. I love that 3D Disneyland book. It's so great talk about a time machine that's uh, but, the time machine by the way i I, I, I shouldn't even say this but i will there's going to be another one. Oh my god i think you told me that already but yeah. i am so shocked yeah, right I, now that is there's, there's gonna be another one on disneyland and there's also gonna be a separate book on uh knott's berry farm and calico ghost town 
Ooh, I love so, that. I love so that. So anyway, I listen, I am just having a ball and and the best part of it is I get to I really I get to talk with people like you Drew and Jim uh, mm-hmm. whenever I will talk to Jim. Well, someday, eventually, yeah. When, when, yeah. Eventually when Jim is on. I mean, I am one of the few people that likes him. Yes, you know? correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That was great. Wasn't that fun? And speaking of fun, Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, which is hosted by Drew and his equally talented co-host, Charles Hood. Uh, If you're not listening to this, folk, you are definitely missing out on some genuinely entertaining and informative podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, we have a few here on Jim Hill Media Podcast Network we'd like you to check out. Uh, we have Disney Dish, which I do with, with Len Testa. We have uh, Marvelous Disney, which I do with uh, Aaron Adams. By the way, Aaron has his own outside Patreon project, 32nd Street, which is about what goes on on Madison Avenue. And oof, scary stuff, folks. Also, we have Looking at Lucasfilm. In fact, when I finish here, I get started on working on that show, which I'll be recording with Brian Gond later tonight. Also, you may want to be aware, folks, that two shows that we previously did here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, Universal Joint, and I want that, will be coming back shortly. Uh, And that's honestly because of Len and my newest project, A Disney Unpacked. That's our first ever video series, which we've been producing in collaboration with veteran Imagineer Jim Shule who spent 30-plus years at Walt Disney Imagineering creating some of your favorite attractions to the park. Things like Rock and Roller Coaster and Mater's Junkyard Jamboree. Disney Unpacked debuts on Patreon early next month, so keep an eye out for that. Beyond that, uh, okay, this is where we talk about social media. And so if you're looking to follow Drew, who's uh, all over the place... And it's still, still at Twitter, X, whatever they're calling it. There you can find him as Drew Tailored, uh, and Tailored is spelled like a tailored suit. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. If you could do Mr. Taylor and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review not just the show you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning, but also uh, Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. That would be cool. And if you really, really, really like what you heard here today, if you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be cool as well. And as promised, Mr. Taylor will be back next week. And I, me personally, I am very much looking forward to hearing his tales of, of what he saw and did in Austin at Fantastic Fest. But uh, until then, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.